It's really an honor to be associated with the other fellows being inducted tonight and with the American Academy of Political and Social Science. Above all, it's an honor to, in some way, in any way, to have my name linked uh, with Walter Lippmann. I was thinking I would have been thrilled to be an, a member of the, um, of the Academy of Veterinarians if I had had Walter <laughs> Lippmann connected with my name. Lippmann's brilliant career demonstrates, I think, that people outside of the Academy can produce important and impactful scholarship. In 1922, Lippmann wrote a fascinating piece for the Annals, which he called Democracy, Foreign Policy, and the Split Personality of the Modern Statesman. At the time, he was on the editorial staff of the New York World. Based on his regular conversations and often close friendships with world leaders, he asserted in that piece that statesmen were much more reasonable in private conversations than they were in their public pronouncements something that those people close to government leaders often know to be the case, but not something that a scholar would necessarily be able to determine on his own. Lippmann's piece was made possible because he was deeply involved in the world of action. It also illustrates the importance of research that often grows out of something in one's personal experience, a phenomenon that I think could be called biography as scholarship. The road that led me to this fellowship has included stints well outside of academic life, and those experiences have informed much of my teaching and research. Three quick examples. Forty years ago, many of you recall that Eugene McCarthy and Bobby Kennedy won virtually all of the political primaries. Nevertheless, most of the delegates of that era were selected by party leaders, not by the public, something we're living with today as we think about the role of superdelegates. So the convention that summer selected Hubert Humphrey as the Democratic Party's nominee. Like many others who've been involved in those campaigns, I felt cheated by the results. I played a key role that summer in organizing something that we pretentiously called the Commission on the Democratic Selection of Presidential Nominees. It was chaired by Iowa Governor Harold Hughes, and members included Alexander Bickel, Doris Fleeson, and Julian Bond, all people whose names could be associated with these kinds of fellowships. When the convention opened, we, we uh, issued a pamphlet called The Democratic Choice that Theodore White called the best study of the democratic election, selection process that we have. But at the, 19, at the 1968 convention, our small staff of 20-somethings wrote a minority report for the Credentials Committee, lobbied delegates, and in the midst of that tumultuous and bloody convention in Chicago, we succeeded in persuading the delegates to open up the party. They required that year that future delegates would have to be selected through processes, quote, open to full public participation in the calendar year of the election. In an editorial commentary on the eve of the 1972 convention, uh, Howard K. Smith of ABC said that young Jeffrey Cowan, it was 40 years ago, or 38, six years ago, had done more to open up Democrat, the Democratic Convention than anyone since Andrew Jackson first invented them. Fast forward to my current research. In 1968, our inspiration for reforming party politics was Theodore Roosevelt's campaign of 1912, the year that the, there were, the first time that there were presidential primaries. I'm now in, working on a research for a book about Theodore Roosevelt's campaign that will examine the campaign of 1912 and the aftermath of the rule changes of 1968. The second example, 
From 1969 to 1972, a colleague and I wrote the Washington column for the Village Voice newspaper. Among other things, we broke the story of the secret CIA program of assassinations of civilian leaders that was called Operation Phoenix. Mainstream news organizations uh, avoided the story either because they didn't want to offend the government, because they worried that the story would somehow compromise national security, or because they were convinced by the false denials of the CIA and the Defense Department. Because of my own experiences during those years, the tension between national security and the freedom of the responsibility of the press in wartime has always fascinated me. So for 20 years, at, uh, teaching undergraduate, uh, undergraduates at UCLA, I started a course with a study of the Pentagon Papers case, which so fascinated me that I thought that it would make a wonderful drama. And as Doug has mentioned, uh, my friend Roy Ahrens and I turned into a play called Top Secret, which was broadcast nationally on public radio at the end of the first Gulf War in 1991. I assumed that would be the end of Top Secret, of the, of the Top Secret experience, but this year, LA Theater Works actually had the play performed in 25 different cities, uh, including Philadelphia. And happily, it appears that the play will be performed for six weeks in New York next fall. Clearly, the issue of national security and freedom, uh, press freedom resonates with audiences today. One final example. When I was a small child, my family had headed the Voice of America. He ran it from 1943 to 1945. For years after that, we had a room in our uh, summer home that my father called the propaganda room because it was surrounded by academic studies of persuasion and propaganda. In 1994, I became the head of the Voice of America, where I became acutely aware of the absence of academic research into this subject. And I, I felt that uh, it was important that the field be studied. So after 9-11, when Americans started to ask the question, why do they hate us, it occurred to me that as dean of the Annenberg School, we should have a study and create the first master's degree and have a center to look at the issues of public diplomacy. And in the process, I started conducting research and writing myself, including serving as the guest editor of the March issue of the Annals, which studies public diplomacy in the 21st century, and a couple of people in this room are contributors to that piece. And exactly a month ago, the State Department awarded USC the first ever Benjamin Franklin Award for public diplomacy. The Secretary of State called our new Center on Public Diplomacy the world's premier research facility in the field. So on behalf of those who combine personal experience with impactful scholarship of all kinds, thank you for inviting me to join the Academy's prestigious community of fellows.